Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows urban agriculture can have a healing and healthy impact on on our area. And so on today's show, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the East Phillips Urban Farm Project. Some a lot of news stories going on, on that, um, uh, and we'll be talking with uh, former Representative Karen Clark as well as Joe Vitel. And uh, but first, we're going to talk about the Minnesota State Fair. Um, and so, for the last few years, um, Food Freedom Radio has been at the Common Table Exhibit in the Minnesota Horticulture Building. And right now, joining us by phone is Anna Way. She's the coordinator of Common Table Minnesota. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks, Laura. It's so fun to be back. It is. It's it was it's it's been an interesting couple years and um but the state fair is on. Yay. Of course last year it was canceled. Um but so tell us a little bit about Common Ground um Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um yeah, so the common table uh is a group of folks who um were actually mostly volunteers who get together and put on an exhibit. Uh, at the horticulture building called Minnesota Eats. And our mission really is to help fairgoers connect to um, actions that they can take in their own lives that um, promote healthy, sustainable local foods. Um, And this will be our, uh, well, the exhibit was created in 2014, um, so this would have been our eighth year, but it's our seventh year um, at the fair, and we are there and excited to see folks again this year um, in even the strange, strange year that it has been. <laughs> yeah, it has. So I know this year, um, masks are required inside the horticulture building? Um, the fair is recommending masks in all of the buildings okay. and, uh, the common table, you know, all of our volunteers will be masked. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm sure it's posed all sorts of, um, challenges, but, um, let's talk a little bit just on, on the purpose. Cause the, the larger idea is how to educate people on, um, six areas of action. And that's important people of action. So we want to talk yeah. about those six areas. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, we really wanted to give people um, information and opportunities to connect with local organizations um, that are promoting, uh, you know, sustainable foods. And so we kind of boiled it down into six action areas several years ago. And, you know, I think over the years, we've also sort of added on a little bit as we've uh, kind of dived deeper into some of those issue areas. But the basic areas are to nurture healthy soils. Um, You know, we can't uh, grow anything without a healthy soil base at the bottom of it all Um, to grow food. um, And so we really help to empower people regardless of where you live, from apartment buildings to large farms to backyard gardeners to indoor gardeners to understand how to grow their own food. Um, And then we also help uh, people to really think about the waste stream. So uh, reducing food waste, um, you know, about 40% of the food in this country is wasted um, and just 
which is so um, awful to think about. It is so awful to think about. (laughs) I mean, the other thing is, you know, this year we have seen um, the our, our skies were cloudy because of the fire. We've seen so much direct evidence of climate change. And when we are wasting food, we are actually wasting water and we're adding to the carbon. And so that food waste is a huge, as you say, it's just insane how much food we waste. And and that's resulting in all sorts of unhealthy consequences. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you bring up a really good point with climate change. We've been really excited to add two new components over the last couple of years to the exhibit. Um, And the first is we have a demonstration solar um, grazing and pollinator farm um, Mm -hmm. exhibit. And um, really what it shows is that you can combine um, solar farming. So, you know, panels with traditional methods of growing food. And so beneath those panels can be, um, you know, native plants that provide Um, great forage for bees and, um, you know, honey producers and also livestock. And so here in Minnesota, we have a lot of grazing sheep that um, are actually grazing right next to solar panels. Um, And it turns out those are really good combinations of providing food and providing um, renewable energy in the same place. Um, And then one other really exciting component we have, um, we'd kind of been talking about the actions. Um, One of the big action areas that we focus on is promoting food justice, Um, understanding that we have inequity in the food system, um, especially racial equity. And one of the people that we um, highlight is a woman from the Main Street Project who is actually doing regenerative agriculture out in Northfield. And what that means is that she is focusing on putting carbon back into the soil at a rate that's higher than the rate that she's taking carbon out. And what's exciting to think about is there is easy it well it's not easy because of because there's so much um you know so much headwind against it but Mm -hmm. it's simple to think about farming working in concert with climate change solutions exactly Um, and and i can do a shout out for main street projects um csa chicken so people can go to main street project also i know that um seward co-op um also partners with them and have some other chickens available and so yeah and so i mean i I actually love to hear about these um real case stories of people doing food in a way that honors um life yeah yeah it's like it's just so exciting and um i just um you know, we try to really be affirmative and showing positive ways that people are making differences. I think a lot of times, I mean, and it is depressing when you think about how climate change is impacting the, you know, this world. Um, but a lot of times you only hear about the dire stories and you feel like it's completely out of our control to do anything. But, you know, it is it is these examples that show and prove that we can uh, choose alternate ways to really go about, um, 
you know, go about our lives in a way that doesn't contribute to climate change. And Anna, um, I want to so. really echo that because with the fire haze, and I've been active in environmental issues a long time, but it just felt depressive and then I mean, depressing. And then with the IPCC reports out, you're, you're knowledgeable on uh, in the floods and, and the yeah. droughts. All of it is so overwhelming. But I actually think that grounding myself on hope is and hope and action combined is so important. Yeah. Well, and I think just, um, you know, one of the things that coming out of the pandemic I've been thinking about so much is just, um, you know, acknowledging that we are in this situation where we've been um, really taking advantage of people and the planet. And um, if we can really reground ourselves in where do we want to go from here, um, you know, today, knowing where we're at, it really, it helps me um, be hopeful, even though, even in a real, even in realism too. (laughs) Right. And I know you're a parent of a young child. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Well, right. I know. I think like <laughs> I say, like the most hopeful act is to have a child. It's like <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but like also, you know, you want to make sure that the world is going to be around for that child. <laughs> you want things to be okay. Yeah. Exactly. So exactly. if people go to the um, exhibit, it's in the horticulture building. What will they see um, in twenty twenty one? Yeah. Well, I think like. If you've been to the exhibit before, you know that there's like the different action stations um, that you can learn different things from. The The big new thing that we did this year, which is really cool, is we have had a straw bale um, gardening area for many years, but we blew it up this year. Um, and Joel from the Straw Bale Gardens created this enormous arch from straw bales um that's vertical you can walk underneath it at full upright position no matter how tall you are um and it's actually the entryway to the exhibit from the main uh from the main like uh rotunda area and it's just like such a fun way to come into the exhibit and it's green and full of life and so i'm just uh really excited and grateful to to Joel for really putting that together um, in this year where we were uncertain whether or not the fair would be happening when he started planting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had him on the show before, Straw, Straw Bell Guarding. That, that's a wonderful arch. I, I actually wasn't sure if I'm going to go now. I'm kind of like, that kind of tempted me a little bit, you know, but wearing my mask and I'm fully vaccinated. But uh, it is... Uh, it's certainly an individual choice. Um, I'm yeah, gonna play a little. Sure. I'm gonna play a little clip uh, from last year's um, uh, last year's uh, time we or the year before that. Um, some of the sound that occurred there. So um, I know uh, one of the things that Michael Cheney was doing is asking people to name a song with a food item, um, and yeah. so it's just it, there was so much. Um, so much vitality, just people getting together and talking about food and what we can imagine together, which is the ideal yeah. behind this. Yeah. So um, I thank you so much, Anna Way, a coordinator with the Common Table Exhibit um, in the Minnesota Horticulture. Um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more about uh, the uh, East um, Phillips Urban Farm Project.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows urban agricultural agriculture can have a healing and healthy effect on the entire community. So really excited about all the conversations and all the incredible activity that has been going on now for a, a long time, for eight years, to create the East Phillips Urban Farm Project. Now, it's been complicated, um, and uh, some recent news out of the city of Minneapolis. And so, joining us right now to um, to explain what's been going on is Joe Vital. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hey, Laura, it's an honor to be on. Yeah, great. Okay, let's just um, fill people in. What is the East uh, Phillips neighborhood in, um, urban farm project? Yeah, so as you said, it's something that began about seven years ago um, when community members came together. Um, when they found out the city was going to buy the old Sears building on 28th and Longfellow um, in East Phillips. Um, and, you know, these community members uh, were compromised of the demographics that you see in East Phillips, you know, uh, our indigenous relatives, you know, our East African relatives, Latinx, uh, our white relatives. And, you know, they... You know, when they were having their discussion, you know, there was the idea of like, well, we could all kind of, you know, submit our own proposal to the city, like a counter proposal, because uh, it is a lot of land. It's something that can be developed into something that is beneficial to the community. But instead of going back to their respective communities in a kind of divide and conquer um, route, they decided to work together and create this cumulative project that is the East Phillips Indoor Urban Farm Project. Um, you know, it is one an indoor urban farm. It provide it also has retail space uh, for entrepreneurship. Um, it's powered by solar panels. Um, there would be a bike shop in their uh, community, world class kitchen, so that you know the food that is cultivated, you know, in their indoor urban farm can then be processed and sold uh, throughout Minneapolis or throughout the state. Um, and, and you know, on top of that, there would be you know seventy units of uh, you know, affordable housing at 30% AMI. So that's what it is in a nutshell. And and one, one of the big purposes is to reuse this huge um, old Sears warehouse. Instead of knocking it down, reuse it. That's one of the big purposes too, right? Exactly. Um, you know, it's 7.5 acres. Um, it's a massive uh, building. And, you know, it fit all of these um, great ideas that the community, these great plans the community has. And, you know, on a nutshell, you know, it would be cooperatively owned by East Phillips community. Great. Okay, so now update us on what's going on with the city council, because there was some, like, good and bad news last week out. So tell us about that. Correct. So, you know, the objective of the community has always been to move the city's Hiawatha expansion project and to uh, out of East Phillips or to stop it completely. So last Friday, um, I apologize. Yeah, last Friday or last Wednesday, I mean, getting my dates mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, the city council um, approved a portion of the a staff directive that we worked alongside our uh, council member champions in Alundra Cano, Andrew Jenkins, Cam Gordon, Andrew Johnson. And essentially, the staff directive we were proposing was to, one, uh, to move the Hiawatha expansion project out of East Phillips and to dictate staff to, you know, find alternative sites. And then, two, to suspend all activity on the Hiawatha expansion project. And lastly, to give 
the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, the community uh, neighborhood group that has kind of been steering this conversation for the past seven years, um, exclusive development right, developing rights to, you know, develop the site to move forward with funding and the process to, you know, realizing the indoor urban farm project. Unfortunately, with that, um, you know, our staff direction was passed, but Osmond and Ellison abstained, um, with Ellison particularly abstaining on the third part, third section that gave ethne exclusive developing rights. So that portion failed. It didn't pass. And so the city is in a pickle in the sense that it needs to move the Hiawatha expansion project out of East Phillips, and the project is suspended. Um, the reason why the city wanted to work with EPNI is because, you know, we have a letter of commitment from the Minneapolis delegation, from the House and Senate, and from the county of, like, we will get this thing funded. We will work with this community to make sure it gets funded. We even have a bonding bill for $32 million that's ready to be proposed. But we can't do anything because we don't own or have exclusive developing rights of the site. Um, you know, if ethne itself does not want to own the building, we want to make sure it's cooperatively owned. Um, so, and the city's like, that's great. We don't want to handle it. If you can handle all those things so we can worry about other projects, that is fantastic. But with the staff directive and how it was passed, with some things missing, the city is on, you know, has to pay, figure out how to pay itself back at this $12.3 million that it's paid out of its water fund to, um, fund the project as far as it has gotten. Um, but with the project now being forced to move, the city's in a uh, curious uh, situation right now. Okay, so I, it is complicated to see the to say the least. And later in the program, we're going to be talking to Karen Clark, and because. Um, but one of the things I, I just want to make sure that people do understand then is that you know what the Hiawatha Campus Expansion Project is. It's a very large project. Um, do you want to try to explain what the Hiawatha Campus Expansion Project is? Yes. And so we'll first start with, you know, in order for the Hiawatha Expansion Project to exist, it, the city needs to demolish the Sears building that currently sits in the location. And that's problematic because um, it would release the arsenic that is currently stored underneath the building. And, you know, this is arsenic that has been accumulating um, for decades um, because, you know, the city allowed industrial polluters to exist in a, in a residential neighborhood because, well, the area was yellow line back in the 1930s. Um, so any type of development is good to them. Um, and this is the one then, point that we just really want to nail down and understand because, um, okay, so the, the Sears building is currently there. The city's plan yep. is to rip it all up. <laughs> the activists want to keep it and repurpose it as an urban farm, and they've wanted to keep it and repurpose it as an urban farm for a long time. Um, but what the city wants to do is rip it up, and when they do that, it is going to release asbestos, and this used to be called the asbestos triangle, and so, I mean, even the um, the um, Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy has a 200-page report on this. If anyone wants to go and read the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy's um, look at this um, environmental issue. So talk a little bit about the environmental issues in the East Phillips neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so East Phillips um, experiences the some of the worst air quality in the state. So imagine, you know, our... You know, the warnings we had a couple of weeks ago where people weren't allowed to go outside, you know, that's an everyday reality 
for residents of East Phillips. You know, we're talking about a majority BIPOC community who, you know, the average income there for a family is about 32000 So we're dealing with a very diverse and a very poor community. And, you know, they're experiencing bad air quality because you have, you know, the Smith Foundry there, um, an asphalt uh, company there as well. So you have industrial polluters that are right next door to it, along with uh, Hiawatha and Cedar Avenue, which experience some of the, you know, highest, you know, uh, traffic in the state. Um, imagine that during rush hour. So yeah, we're um, gonna we're gonna take a break, Joe Vitel, um, with the uh, East Phillips Neighborhood Institute. We're gonna take a little bit of break, and we'll come back. We'll talk more about plans for East Urban Indoor Farm. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hetland, um, a student in permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows that urban agriculture can have a healthy and healing impact on our on our cities. And right now, um, I'm talking with Joe Vitel. He's uh, with the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute. He's also a member of the Native Caucus. And we were talking on break about the um, uh, the uh, Hiawatha expansion project. And tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's problematic because it's being built in a very poor community that has been uh, designated as a green zone, meaning that you need to scale back the pollution in the um, in the environment, as well as, you know, invest in green technology in the area. Um, but the Hiawatha Expansion Project kind of goes against, you know, these, these green zone policies that the city itself approved back in 2017 um, in that you know, inclu- so the Hiawatha Expansion Project accumulates all of the city works departments into one area. Um, so you're talking about, you know, the water treatment um, and the most important one and why the city or why the community is against the project is the storage and truck storage, um, meaning that the entire city fleet will be stored on this site. All the pipes that you see um that the city lays out will be stored on this site. Uh, you know, the cement, the asphalt that the city uses will be stored on this site. And as I mentioned before, this is already a community that experiences some of the worst air quality in the state. And you're just going to add more. Um, in addition to that, in the last part, is that they're building a parking ramp to, you know, fit 400 cars. So the city is introducing more pollution in this poor BIPOC area that has bad air, and it's only going to make it worse. And, you know, the IPCC report came out, and air quality, you know, the poor quality that we experienced where people couldn't go outside, that's just going to be like a norm in the future. And, you know, we're already impacting poor communities right now. And so uh, last week, the city of Minneapolis City Council voted to temporarily suspend uh, highway ex- uh, the Hiawatha expansion project. So that was a piece of good news. Oh, absolutely. Um, but the way it was passed, you know, sets it up for a mayoral veto. And I don't want to underplay the victory that this that that last vote was because it moved to the Hiawatha expansion out of East Phillips, you know, this poor community, alongside all our supporters from across the city and across the nation, there are people who are like in on this in different states. 
um, with your help, you know, through the community's efforts, we were able to suspend it in East Phillips. But as I mentioned before, it puts the city in a financially precarious state where it not only needs to move the project, a project it has spent um, $12.3 million out of the water fund. And two, you know, it's leaving a site it acquired for $6.8 million just empty and just banned. Um, and so, you know, and the EAW was approved, uh, which is the Environmental Assessment Worksheet, which your listeners will uh, learn more about later. Um, but with those things passed, it sets it up for a mayoral veto, which would then end any type of suspension and allow construction to start in se- September 9th. Oh, so um, so what can our listeners do? Yes. Um, go to the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute's Facebook, um, you know, donate money because if a mayoral veto comes through and we can't stop it, you know, that's a nine, we need to get nine votes and there are particular council members who um, will not budge. You know, if we can't get to the nine votes, we'll have to we'll have to go to legal lit- litigation again against the city. Um, if not, email the mayor. Tell him do not veto. You know, support the indoor urban farm. Um, reach out to Council Member Jamal Osman and tell him that you know change his vote. Support the East Phillips uh, urban farm. Um, you know. Tweet about us. Write write about us on Facebook. Spread the word. Yeah, and those always help. Yeah, it does. And so, and I, and I, I think this the idea of reusing this building, the idea of knocking down a big building like that and putting in this huge expansion. We all, we all need clean water. It's not, but but the idea of centralizing that in one location, whereas instead um, we could repurpose that building. Um, and you know, tell us a little bit about the vision behind East. Phillips Urban Farm. Yeah. So, again, it was um, a vision that was brought forth by the community. And it's not necessarily something of like, oh, okay, um, we want these things because it's a want. You know, indoor, you know, an indoor urban farm with fresh food, uh, with aquaponics. So, you know, there would be walleye. There's an indigenous community, a large Anishinaabe com- uh, community where walleye is like a traditional food for them. Retail space for people to like engage with the entrepreneurial um, and economic sector. Um, solar panels, because, you know, that's where we want our energy to come from. A coffee shop so people can be- feel proud and support their local community. You know, a bike shop because it's on the greenway. These are things the community needs, things that don't exist in the neighborhood. You know, if you live in East Phillips and you want to go out, you know, for a cup of coffee, you probably have to go to Lake Street or Franklin or the Midtown uh, Global Market. So there's no investment coming back into the community. Um, And these are things that the community needs. And, you know, and so, you know, we are just going forward with those things. Um, And, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 I'm stumbling because it's like I'm just reminding myself of like it's just like a shoe in. This is like a lob for the city to dunk in. Like yes, we support this because it's you know grassroots led. Um, these are things 
uh, the community wants. We even did a survey to make sure these are still things the community wants, and a majority of them said, yes, we need an indoor urban farm. That all sounds great. Well, and I I think one thing that's not appreciated is how much um, the human being needs exposure to green spaces and to other living things, and how that exposure to um, living plants. In fact, I think I think you even said that your plant makes you a little happier, but that I do believe that urban farming and being connected to that can have so many mutual so much benefits. You know, actually reducing crime, improving health and well being, mental health. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So soil therapy is like, is, you know, there's more research coming out on it that it, it impacts us. It's how we're related to the land. You know, it's how we build community when we, we create something together. And on that topic of community, you know, there's a lot of community, you know, support for this. You know, in the undertone of the community coming together, there was that conversation about the youth and what we're doing for them. And right now, the Little, Little Earth um, has a urban farm in the back of their uh, housing project that teaches youth on how to garden. Mm-hmm. But that only runs until 7 to 13 years old. And we were always under the agreement that if this indoor urban farm is passed, we get it, that the youth would continue their training um, into these green jobs. They would learn right. about indoor urban farming. They would learn about aquaponics. And you own your food system. You own your food system, you know, in a healthy, vital way. Um, Joe Vidal um, with East Phillips Neighborhood Institute um, talking about the East Phillips Urban Farm. And when we come back, we're going to be joined with Karen Clark. Thank you for listening. Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows that urban agriculture can have a healing and healthy impact um, on all of us. And uh, on today's show, we're talking about um, the East Phillips Urban Farm Project. Uh, Last segment, uh, Joe Vidal joined us, and right now, Karen Clark is with us. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Karen. Thank you, Laura. Glad to be with you. Yeah, so I know uh, this project, we've been talking about this several times, so it's been going on yep. for seven years. Let's briefly and uh, uh, review the kind of complicated history. Well, um, the East Phillips neighborhood is a, is a very uh, low-income, diverse, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the whole city. And, um, you know, we have the largest American Indian population in the city and you know it's just a it's a great place to live i've lived there more almost 40 years and um but we have a lot of challenges um like i said we're very low income and one of the problems is uh, the lack of uh, food security you know the lack of the access to good affordable healthy food and um when the um former roof depot uh company which was uh, basically a consortium of a lot of roofers who had this big almost a quarter of a million square foot warehouse that they stored their supplies in and they had kind of like kiosks inside there um when they s- decided to close down and go their separate ways um that building went up for sale and it's located in east phillips um 
right across the street from a little earth of United Tribes housing and also across the street the other way from the two biggest polluters in the neighborhood, uh, Smith Foundry and Bituminous Roadways, the asphalt plant. And when that building went up for sale, the neighborhoods are looking at, oh, my goodness, is there, are there going to be another industrial polluter put in there? Uh, let's do something different. So the, the neighborhood came to me. I was in the legislature at the time, and we talked about what could happen there. And, and so I was able to put together legislation that um, – after a bunch of discussion, uh, uh, the, the neighborhood decided, let's make that big building an indoor urban farm. And I was very excited about that because that's something that uh, we do at the Women's Environmental Institute. We have hoop houses that we grow food in all winter long. And so I was very excited about helping bring that vision forward. And there were other parts to it, too, as the project evolved and the neighborhood engagement really took off and went deep. People decided they wanted, you know, markets in there. They wanted cultural space for um, the Native community, for the Somali communities, for, you know, a lot of um, opportunities to make our, our neighborhood better. And one of the main things was to create jobs, uh, good-paying jobs, living-wage jobs. So I was able in 2017 to pass legislation that uh, put the first chunk of money into that project, and it was $319,000 to do architectural planning, Community organizing, that was part of the, the bill, part of the legislation, um, to get all that put together um, with all the diverse communities. And we named the communities, wanted to make sure that in this community, which is a majority uh, people of color and Native people community, that we would be able to have strong representation from all the BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, Somali, and East African in general, and uh, Native American is kind of very primary. The Native American community really took a big role in the leadership of this from the beginning. So uh, we started putting that together. But lo and behold, city of Minneapolis said, oh, my goodness, neighborhood. We forgot to tell you we had other plans for that spot. We've been planning it for years, but they, they really never did come to um, the official neighborhood organization called East Phillips Improvement Coalition, EPIC. They never came and told them about this until... We, are, we had this whole um, plan in, pro in progress, and we had actually passed the legislation. And they said, no, no, you can't have that building. We want to use that space. We're going to knock that building down, and we're going to use that space to store our sewer pipes, our water pipes, our water meters, our manhole covers, and our diesel trucks, and all the stuff that the public works department needs. We're going to consolidate it from all over the city right there, and, you know, that's what we're going to do. And we, we said, no, 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 we've already got this plan and started going. And they said that they, um, I guess they threatened the, the owners who we had negotiated a $5 million price tag with stopped talking to us so that the city had threatened eminent domain. And so they couldn't talk to us anymore and um, ended up getting almost another $2 million out of our taxpayer dollars to uh, sell it to the city. So, yeah. You know, the neighborhood just said, no, this is not okay. We're not going to take the city down. We want what our vision is. And as we looked at it more and more, we discovered, you know, that the city's plan not only would deny us the asset that we wanted to put there, but it also would add to the existing overburden of toxic pollution that plagues East Phillips neighborhood. So, um we and then, couldn't convince them with conversation, so we took them to court, and we still have a lawsuit pending. 
Yeah, and um, the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy has comments, a 200-page comment on on some of the technical issues with the idea of the Hiawatha Campus Expansion Project. Basically, the city of Minneapolis putting all of its city public works um, in one central location. Um, And one of the things that seems disheartening, I guess, is what the city planners want to do is knock down the huge building that's there. And when they knock that building down, that may also release some toxics. Oh, yes. Absolutely. This this is um, a part of Minneapolis that was designated by the U.S. federal government, a residential arsenic Superfund site, residential Superfund site. So in other words, um, arsenic was at a certain spot, which is right where that Roof, right next to where the Roof Depot building is right now, there had been a pesticide plant whose major component of their pesticide was arsenic. And they did that for about 30 years, and then they closed down. And we didn't know anything about problems in the neighborhood with it until Highway 55 was going to be constructed. And, you know, I guess the highway crews, they already, always uh, test the soil of the land they're going to be working on. And they found this arsenic. Lo and behold, where in the world did that arsenic come from? And then they found that there had been that previously existing pesticide plant um and the the roof depot building is built over um where some of that arsenic was most concentrated and um it's when that happens it it encapsulates it is the words they use in other words it holds it down it prevents it from spreading around um unfortunately the arsenic was both powdered and liquid, and some of the liquid arsenic went right down into the um, aquifer, and it's slowly moving, we're told, towards the Mississippi River. But there were, like, almost 600 of our homes had to have our yards all or partially removed because, again, there's arsenic that flew all over the neighborhood from, I guess, from the big piles of arsenic that were sitting there beside that pesticide plant for decades, and then they had to ex- excavate a lot of it, and then they came to our yards, and they excavated our yards. So they, we all had our yards tested, those of us who lived around there. I live about a block and a half away. Um, I was number 30 of about <laughs> 600 homes that, uh, you know, they came starting at the curb, took 12 inches, um, and then went another two, two or three, four inches up to the uh, um, house. And so I lost my front yard, my backyard, and they brought in some replacement dirt. So, so if the if this if the um, Hiawatha campus expansion project moves forward, this building would get knocked down and that is likely to release more arsenic in the neighborhood. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, they'd have to do all kinds of remediation to stop it from um, flying around, you know. This is the powdered arsenic in that that area. And it, it's in the soil and and when they came to do my house for example, they were all wearing their big white jumpsuits and got all of that. And uh, so it's not a, it's not a simple thing to take it out of, uh, you know, this. So, and I Yeah, it's it's a very complicated thing. So one of the soundest environmental things to do would be to leave the building there so you don't release the arsenic, but also leave the building there because the building's actually in pretty good shape. Yes. Yeah, it's a steel and um, brick structure and, you know, Sears doesn't build junk. They build it as a warehouse (laughs) previously. And, uh, you know, used it for a number of years before it became the Roof Depot uh, Consortium. So, you know, yeah, it's a solid building. The city, unfortunately, when they bought it, they, you know, they, their plans were to knock it down. So they turned off the utilities and that allowed water 
to run in and not be pumped out. And so there's water that was in the basement and, you know, they claim like, oh, the building's not in good shape. Well, it's as far as we understand it, although they won't let anybody go in and look at it, um, what's what's not good in good shape can be remediated, can be repaired. Um, and, you know, it's just a solid structure, according to our architect. Okay. And to update us on the city council action and what our listeners can do. Okay. Well, the latest action from the city council was um, to put forward what they call a staff directive. And um, council member Cano, Alondra Cano, who is our council member for our ward, uh, along with um, three other city council members, uh, council member Kim Gordon, uh, Andrew Johnson, um, and um, really, really led by Andrea Jenkins. Uh, the four of them put forward this staff directive saying that the city would discontinue its plan to, you know, take over that building and that space, and they would uh, turn it over to the East Phillips neighborhood to do what do our vision. Um, and part of the um, proposal part of the staff directive said that it would give us uh, exclusive development rights for either one or two years, uh, which is what we need in order to be able to get the kind of investors from you know city, county, state, private investors to say you know yes we will uh, give you a bid to to uh, you know come in there and help you build your aquaponics or or help you or do the housing. There's a housing component to this, in addition to um, the the whole urban farming part. Um, we'll we'll come in and we'll we'll participate, um, help you know build it out and, and make it a wonderful asset. And um, so it takes bonding money, and we have commitments from our state legislators. The Minneapolis delegation of legislators is with us on this. Um, give special credit to Senator Patricia Torres Ray, um, and Bobby Champion. Senator Champion was one of the ones who, when we got the first three hundred some thousand dollars, he was one of our our champions too and he um just just recently again signed on a letter of support we we have a letter of support from numerous legislators from the city south side and, and north side who are saying yes we we will help this this uh east phillips community organization get the bonding dollars so um, um yes, karen we, we're down to uh, really less than even a minute but so oh. what we really need right now is is for people to contact city council members contact the mayor and say don't knock down the building. Don't release all that arsenic in the neighborhood. Go read the 200-page report from the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy and support the neighbor's vision for um, urban agriculture. Thank you, Laura. That's exactly right. This, this is going to be the next vote either on the 9th of September or maybe it will be put off until the 23rd. And during that time, um, the city has to look at the racial equity Impact uh, assessment is what it's called. Yeah, right, so you can get more information about the East Side Urban uh, East Phillips Urban Farm. You've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, Progressive Voice of Minnesota.